You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm a little flabbergasted that the name Jennifer Ann Whalen isn't on everyone's blogs, tongues, lips. I'm surprised that she hasn't become a cause celeb on the left. Um, she's a Pennsylvania single working mom, uh, works in a nursing home who is going to prison, sent to jail for a year because when her 16 year old daughter got pregnant and her 16 year old daughter, uh, told her mother that she wanted to get an abortion and her mother told her that she would support her in any choice decision she decided to make. Jennifer Whalen, realized that there was no abortion clinic anywhere near the rural part of Pennsylvania where she lives and got online to research her options and found out about abortion pills, basically RU846, the uh, abortion pill that you can go to clinics and have administered to you. It's not the morning after pill. It is an abortion pill. And you can order it online. Uh, It's not legal. Um, Of course, the sites selling it don't emphasize that point that it's not legal, but you can order it online and Jennifer Whalen, single working parent in rural Pennsylvania, where the nearest abortion clinic was 78 miles away, according to Reuters, ordered the pills and administered them to her daughter. And her daughter had complications, cramps and some bleeding. She was miscarrying. That's what the pills induce, miscarriage. And took her daughter to the hospital and someone at the hospital called the police and the police called prosecutors. And Jennifer Whalen is going to prison. We have here a case where politicians and anti-choice activists have done all they can to make safe and legal abortions harder and harder to obtain by shutting down clinics, by scaring women away from clinics, by regulating clinics out of existence, and then punishing someone who in this world of scarcity, abortion scarcity, reproductive choice scarcity, this inability to easily access safe and legal appropriate abortions, they are coming, turning around and punishing someone for getting what? For getting the abortion that she could get her daughter instead of the optimal abortion that her daughter probably deserved and needed, but she couldn't get because Pennsylvania, like so many states, uh, has regulated abortion nearly out of existence and made it harder and harder to get. Like I said, Reuters noted in their story about Jennifer Whalen's case, that there was an abortion clinic 74 miles away in Harrisburg, and that implied that a safe and legal abortion was just a 90-minute drive away for Jennifer Whalen and her daughter, which is not true. Pennsylvania has a 24-hour wait. Pennsylvania has a 24-hour waiting period before a procedure is provided. You actually need to go to the abortion clinic one day and then return the next day, where you will receive state-directed counseling that includes information designed to discourage women from having an abortion. So state-mandated, usually misleading, lying counseling, and a 24-hour wait. So this wasn't a matter of a 90-minute drive, three hours back and forth to get an abortion. This was a working class, works in a nursing home, probably gets minimum wage or close to it. A working class woman who may or may not have access to a car of her own being told that she needs to spend two days out of town to get her daughter a safe and legal abortion in a clinic. Women like Waylon really can't afford to take two days off work to drive back and forth to a far-off abortion clinic. Women like Waylon and her family usually can't afford to spend the night in a hotel room, so it would have been two days of driving back and forth. And so Waylon 
When you think about it, she did the best she could for her daughter under very difficult circumstances. And make no mistake, those circumstances, they are difficult by design. Anti-choice politicians, those motherfuckers, they have worked to make safe and legal abortions harder and harder to obtain. They make getting a safe and legal abortion, clinic abortion, financially and logistically impossible for poor and working class families like Wayland's. And then those same politicians turn around and punish someone like Waylon, for getting her daughter the only abortion that she could get her. And there's this. Waylon doesn't have health insurance. And her daughter didn't have health insurance. So she couldn't get a hospital abortion for her daughter either, according to Reuters. So we have an economic system in our country that impoverishes working people like Waylon and her family and then persecutes them for making the choices that they make under duress. I wrote about Waylon last week, and I've been a little shocked by how little has been written about Waylon. And I'm happy to report that the New York Times is working on a story that's going to come out this week. Uh, Emily Bazelon, terrific writer, just wrote a large piece on abortion pills and clinics that provide them to women in places where abortions are impossible or difficult to get for the New York Times magazine, uh, is writing up Waylon's case. And it's going to come out sometime this week after the podcast airs. Look for that story. There hasn't been a lot of detail out there about Waylon and her circumstance. I'm interested to find out more. I'm also interested, perhaps, in raising money for Waylon and her family. So watch this space. Next week, after reading Emily Bazelon's piece in the New York Times this week, and as we find out more about what was done to Jennifer Waylon and her family, we might be launching a little online fundraising campaign to help Waylon with her living expenses while she is in jail, help her family with their living expenses and with any medical bills that may have been incurred, and also to show our support for a working-class woman in a rural area who did the best she could by her daughter and is being punished for it. And the people who should be punished for it, the politicians and anti-choice activists who forced this suboptimal abortion, this suboptimal choice on Waylon, they're the ones who should be in jail. They're the ones who should be ashamed of themselves. They're the ones who bear responsibility. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old female living in the Southeast. And I was dating a person who I have no desire to get back with, but we dated and he was waiting till marriage. I haven't waited till marriage and I'm not waiting till marriage. And I've just started listening to your podcast in the past year, but I've never heard you mention anything about your thoughts on waiting till marriage. For our relationship, it wasn't our sexual incompatibility that tore us apart. It was part of the, it was our different religious beliefs. But for us, I felt like if we had gotten married, we would have been very sexually compatible. But I guess I'm just calling because I'm just wondering what your thoughts on waiting till marriage, even if you think you might be sexually compatible with them once you're married. I think it has been a while since I've talked about uh, whether waiting till marriage is a good idea or not. There were perhaps a few years ago a bunch of calls about it and I felt like I'd said everything I had to say and should give the issue a rest, which we try to do around here. But uh, it's been a while, so I guess I need to trot out my PowerPoint presentation on waiting until marriage. It is a bad idea, in my opinion. Sexual compatibility is so important. You can see the misery that sexual incompatibility in committed relationships creates if you listen to the show for five fucking minutes. You spend 11 seconds dinking through my emails and you will see the damage, the way that sexual incompatibility just shreds people, shreds relationships, destroys people's self-confidence, their egos. It's just horrible. So in my 
opinion based on my perhaps skewed sample. I think establishing sexual compatibility before marriage is hugely important. 95% of everybody, not virgins on their wedding night. So I think people are basically taking that advice and running with it. It is a good idea to figure out who you are sexually, what you want sexually, before you commit to being with one person for the rest of your life, particularly if that relationship is going to either consciously be monogamous or default monogamous, which is what too many relationships do. People who marry later in life tend to have more successful marriages. People who marry in their teens and early 20s, mid-20s, those are marriages that often end in divorce. I would argue that many of those marriages fail because people are too young to make that kind of decision, but also they don't know who they are sexually or emotionally. They don't know what they want exactly. They haven't sampled from the great buffet table of dicks and pussies and whatever else and figured out what they want before picking one and committing. Also, I think waiting creates a terrible incentive for young people, particularly young and horny people, to pick somebody, to settle, to marry. If you have it in your head, consciously or subconsciously, that you cannot have this sex thing, that you are pretty much wired to go and get, that you are hungry for from age 13 or 14, if you cannot have that thing until you marry, that creates a perverse incentive, not just to marry, just for sex, but also to round up feelings of lust or desire, or the desire to have sex, to love. You might be with somebody and think, I want to fuck this person so badly, and the only way I can fuck this person in reality is if I love this person. So guess what? I love this person. The only way I can get it on with this person is if we're married and will you marry me? I will. And disaster routinely ensues. So what do I think about waiting until marriage? I think it's a really stupid fucking idea. And most people who say that they're waiting until marriage aren't. You dig into the data, you interview people who say that they're waiting until marriage, and what they're doing is they're saving vaginal intercourse until marriage. They are doing oral. They are mutually masturbating one another. They are even, in many infamous cases, saddlebacking which is a savage love term for having anal sex so as to preserve your virginity for your wedding nights. You're going to get fucked in the ass and not the vagina, which makes you a virgin on your wedding night. And I love that standard uh, and have often joked that you know by that social conservative, demented, warped standard, Terry, my husband of 20 years, is a virgin because he's never had vaginal intercourse. I've been preserving the shit out of that boy's virginity for 20 years. When the right woman comes along, he's going to make her so happy on their wedding night when he marries her as a virgin. So it's just a bad idea all around. It, it, it is the author of so much misery uh, in long-term relationships, so much misunderstanding. It places at once too much importance and too little importance on sex, on establishing compatibility, hugely important, and withholding it uh, makes it loom too large and seem too important. It incentivizes early uh, – ill-advised impulse marriages. It encourages young people to round feelings of lust and desire up to love prematurely. I just think it's a terrible idea. All that said, I have met some reasonable, rational people. I've even spoken to some reasonable, rational people on this show who have made a decision to withhold something almost always invariably vaginal intercourse, that they want to hold this one thing back, that they're going to do everything else sexually and they don't think they're virgins. They don't think this is what Jesus wants, right? They just want to have one thing in the sex bank, one thing in reserve, one thing in the vaults that they share just with the person or first with the person that they marry. And I can get behind that. I really can. If you want, if you're not Jesusing this up, if you're not 
being psycho about it, if you're not getting fucked in the ass every night for five years and calling yourself a virgin because there's never been a dick in your pussy, and you're holding back vaginal intercourse because you want this one thing to be special and for your wedding, okay, fine. If you can be reasonable, rational about it, fine. I could get behind that. And like I said, I've spoken to some people who seem very sensible about that and realistic about it and not engaged in kind of magical, twatical thinking about the importance of penis and vagina virginity on one particular day of your life. But generally, waiting till marriage, bad idea. And the proof is in the divorce courts. Hey, Dan, I'm a 29-year-old male. Um, I'm straight. And I recently started dating this girl. After talking with her a little bit, it turns out that, that she's a virgin. Now, I have not been with a virgin since I was 16 years old. And this is all a, a little bit new for me. And, I, and I'm trying to, you know, uh, trying to be a good guy here, right? In talking with her, she's a little more uh, sexually inexperienced, but also relationship inexperienced. Now, she's 26 and... Uh, She's in a very demanding graduate program. She says she hasn't had time for relationships, right? Now, the virgin part isn't that big of a deal, but the crazy part to me was that she said that she's um, never masturbated to the point of, of coming before, right? So when she talks to me about sex, I tell her that what she needs is to um, learn how to come herself. That way she knows what she likes and whoever her partner ends up being right? She can sort of let them know what she likes and how she likes it, right? She needs to like know herself. I don't really know exactly what to do with regard to trying to help her with that, but not overstep my bounds because it's not like I'm her aunt who like, you know, just go buy her a vibrator. I, I, I told her, you know, hey, you should uh, learn how to do that for yourself uh, before you, you know, jump into things. Now, um, when I've talked with her, when we've talked about sex, she says she's not one of those sex until uh, only sex after marriage people that she's just, you know, waiting to find the right guy. So um, I guess my question is, uh, in a situation dealing with somebody very inexperienced, um, how do you sort of nudge them in the right direction uh, in, a, in sort of a GGG way, Okay. One of the big problems in that opposite sex sex that you heterosexuals have so much of, uh, one of the big disconnects is that all too often women arrive at partnered sex and it sounds like this girl that you're dating is about to arrive at partnered sex without ever having masturbated. They don't know how their own pussies work. They don't know what their plateaus are, where they are, what it feels like or what the, the, the approach of orgasmic inevitability feels like. They don't know how to get themselves off and so they aren't capable of communicating to their new partner how they get off or what turns them on or how to turn them on or how to touch them or how to please them. Boys, on the other hand, arrived at partnered sex having masturbated for 10 years or five years or seven years. But boys arrive at partnered sex experts on not vaginas, not women, not pussy, not vulva, not clits, but experts on dick. Every straight boy arrives at partnered sex, a complete and total fucking PhD dissertation done expert on his own dick and what it needs and what, you know, how it feels, what feels good, what he needs to get off, what sort of pressure, intensity, pace, all of it. He knows and he goes for it. Sometimes that's a negative guys, death grip syndrome. Guys can carve grooves into their dicks that partner in sex uh, can't compete with. And if you've been masturbating for 10 years by 
in my most favorite and famous example, putting your dick between the mattress and box springs and humping away. That's not what the inside of another human being feels like, particularly if you're also wearing a condom. doesn't feel like that. So sometimes dicks have to relearn how to get off and guys can become experts on those new sensations too. But women, so many, mouth by a sex-shaming, slut-shaming, misogynist culture – are, are sort of psyched into believing that they aren't sexual or that there's something so wrong with being sexual or, or, or dirty about touching yourself or pleasing yourself, that they have no right to pleasure or self-pleasure, whereas guys are sort of encouraged by American pie movies and everything else to go for it, to do it, to jack off, to pleasure. It's expected of them and it's not expected of women or girls. And so women and girls, as you are finding with your new girlfriend, many, many, many of them, a great many of them, far too many of them, arrive at that first partner in sex Clueless about what feels good, how to get themselves off, never having masturbated, and never having given it much thought because you're a good person. You're a good girl if you don't think about or obsess about sex. It's also possible that she could be an asexual girl and hasn't given this stuff much thought or pleasure herself because she has no real interest in sex, no libido. There is no there there. None of that answers your question. Your question was how do you go? How do you approach this person? How do you – Awaken that shit in her without being coercive or prescriptive or shaming yourself or piling on and shaming her more than she's already perhaps been shamed by the culture. I think, and this is a little explosive and I apologize in advance to people who are going to be angry, but whatever. I think you take your pleasure with her, with her consent, with her active and joyful participation. You don't force her to do anything she doesn't want to do, but you say, these are the things that I like sexually and let's start there and see if you like them too and see what they, how they make you feel, what that awakens in you. And then be receptive to her physical and verbal cues. Be solicitive of verbal cues. Talk to her. Talk to active consent. Talk to her. Talk to her. Talk to her. And explore. But start with what you know works and feels good, which are the things that you like and you would like to do. In a way, you'll be modeling for her that agency right? That she currently lacks or can't tap into. And if you model that for her while at the same time being solicitous of her and encouraging her to throw out on the table, whatever she wants to try to go where she wants to go in the moment. If she starts to initiate or make requests and to certainly back off whenever she, as you solicit her active and ongoing and explicit consent, if she is uncomfortable with something or wants to dial it back or try something else or take a break or stop. Of course you do those things, but at least initially take your pleasure. And I had a really good experience with that. You know, I was a repressed, crazy Catholic queer kid, a teenager when I met my first boyfriend who I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I didn't know what the fuck I was allowed to do. I felt bad about the things that I thought about wanting to do. And we started with him just doing what he liked. And then I liked some of that stuff and didn't like others of it. And so we didn't do what I didn't like. And then I started to have things that I liked too. And we rolled with it. But at least at the start, out of the gate with nervous, innocent, inexperienced me. Imagine, picture that. Would you for a minute, nervous, inexperienced, uh, virginal me. Start, the, the starting point was him, his dick, his experiences, his desires. And we ran from there. And I would urge you to do the same while being as kind, communicative, solicitous, compassionate, and willing to roll with it as my first boyfriend was when we first became intimate. Good luck and get her a vibrator. Indeed. 
go get her a vibrator. Nothing wrong with that. Hi, Dan. I am stuck in a relationship quandary, and I'd really appreciate your perspective. I've been with my partner for over six years with a couple of breaks in there. The first four years of our relationship were long distance, and we've now lived together for two years. I'm 31, and he's 36. We have an issue that dates back to the beginning stages of our relationship. When we started dating, I went to a friend's wedding and saw a male friend of mine that I'd had feelings for in the past, and I realized that I still had feelings for him. The next time I saw my partner, which was within a week of the wedding, I told him about this, hoping to start building a relationship on honesty and openness, and I've basically regretted doing that ever since, as all it really seemed to do was breed jealousy and mistrust in my partner, which then creates this domino effect where I'm careful about what information I share about male friends, not just the one I had on and off feelings for, and then my partner interprets my carefulness to mean that I have something to hide. I've been to weddings without him since. He's sometimes unavailable because of his work. And when I come back, I am met with questions about who I danced with, why I stayed out so late, etc. I find myself sitting across from him explaining myself when there's nothing to explain. And it feels really unfair. When I moved in at my partner's request, I basically friend broke up with the friend I'd previously had feelings for. In my heart, this didn't feel right, but I thought of the compromise I needed to make to be able to be with my partner. I understand that it was hurtful for my partner to know that I had feelings for more than just him. It would hurt my feelings too. But I also understand that having these feelings is human, and the bigger issue is what choices are made as a result of the feelings. I've never physically cheated on my partner. I hate being questioned and being asked again about the details of my feelings for this friend from way back when. I've even asked my partner, don't you ever have crushes on anyone? And he responded by saying that he sees women he'd like to have sex with, but that's different from having feelings for someone. I guess he and I are just different that way. How do we navigate this? For as much as he seems to not trust me on this issue, I realize I don't trust him to let go of the issue. I know all couples have their issues and maybe this is just one of ours that we'll have to deal with from time to time. How do I figure out if this specific issue is a deal breaker, though? Is there something I'm not seeing? Am I doing something wrong? Can you help shed some light on this? Thanks, Dan. So I don't think you should have to pretend. Uh, we will want to fuck other people. People in committed monogamous relationships need to accept that. Of course, your partner wants to fuck other people, and so do you. And I, I think if your boyfriend is honest with himself, he knows he gets crushes on other girls. He knows he sees other girls that he would like to fuck. But he has a monogamous commitment to you. He's made a monogamous commitment, presumably. And so he doesn't fuck them, right? Yeah. And. Right. He should be able to – you should be able to look at him and say the same thing. Of course there's other men in the world I would like to fuck. Of course there's other men in the world I find attractive, but I'm not fucking them. And if you can't trust me not to fuck them, let's pull the plug because I don't want to live with these interrogations for the rest of my fucking life. Yeah, I, I realize how much this like mistrust on my part that he can't give up the issue affects how I – go about really my daily life. And you, you, should, know, I, you shouldn't have to end relationships with friends, even friends you've had crushes on in the past, even guys you dated in the past. That's just controlling bullshit behavior and it needs to stop and it won't stop if you are being successfully controlled by it. And it sounds like you are being successfully right. controlled by it. You're dropping friends right, and, which is, yeah. and, and policing what you do and, and how you behave and submitting to these interrogations and I, and I just think you need to level with them and say, this is a cancer growing on a relationship and it's going to kill it. So you need to get into therapy. You need to work past this. You need to trust me. You need to trust that, yes, I want to fuck other men. 
And no, I am not fucking other men. Just as I trust that you want to fuck other women and you are not fucking other women. Right. And you will get crushes right. on other women and I will get crushes on other men. And then I will take that sexual energy that that crush awakens in me home and I will plow it into you as you will plow it into me. But to look right. at each other and insist that we're not allowed to experience these things that we're going to experience anyway. We have to pretend that this isn't happening. These emotional dynamics aren't happening is to have our whole relationship sort of balanced on the, the, the tip of this lie. And of course it's going to collapse and fall. It's going to, it's going to, you can't sustain that over time. You're, you're, right. He's insisting that you lie to him and he shouldn't because it, it's just going to, it's going to kill the relationship. That said, I do want to address him. You said at the top, like you came home and you disclosed that you saw this guy you had a crush on because you wanted a relationship that's open and honest. And I'm all for open and honest, but there's also, you know, openness and honesty can tip into cruelty and cluelessness sometimes that knowing a partner has a certain kind of insecurity and you didn't know it when you made this disclosure and his, you know, multi-year fit about it is bullshit. But sometimes we, you know, you know, if you know the partner's insecure and slightly jealous, but rational about it, he recognizes that it's his problem. You don't come home and say, Oh, I, there's a new guy at work. I think is so hot. I have such a crush on him. Let me give you a blowjob. You don't do that to your partner. Because you want to take right. their insecurities into consideration. That's being considerate. So long as their insecurities around jealousy aren't irrational, controlling behavior, then I think it's okay to omit, to, you know, to not discuss what you both know happens because, you know, it sandpapers a nerve. Right. I, I do agree with you. I, you know, as I said in my call, I kind of, I wish I look back on having said that to him and I just, wish I hadn't not to be dishonest, but because it's not necessary information for him to know unless I, you know, but, but it is a fact it's not necessary for him to know, but something he should assume that you are out there in the world and you're encountering other men and you're going to want to fuck some of those other men and you're not fucking them because you love him and you made a commitment to him and a monogamous commitment as he has made to you. And you trust that he's out there in the world, meets other women, wants to fuck him, doesn't. And so you guys need to, you need to say exactly that with him. You need to lay that out. And say, this ends. The interrogations and, and the mistrust ends now. I'm not going to submit to it anymore. I won't come home and say, hot guy at work. I'm not going to like, because clearly there's an insecurity there. And so I'm right. not going to be wantonly cruel or inconsiderate. But I'm not going to be bullied and policed and harassed like this and controlled like this. It's definitely a cycle where, you know, things are good between us and then this it's like a, it lies dormant for a, a long time, but then it, it wakes up again. And, and I, you know, I, I can't believe that it has become an issue again each time it happens. And then, and what is he afraid? You know, that, what is he afraid that you're going to do? Have you asked him like, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid is going to happen? I'm going to fuck some other guy. Is that it? I haven't, I haven't asked him that. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I assume he's afraid that, yeah, it comes from a place of insecurity. He's afraid that I'll, Okay, well, you can be rational about that shit too. 50% of all relationships touched by infidelity, right? There's a fi- one in 50-50 chance that he's going to cheat on you or you're going to cheat on him or you're going to be one of those couples where you both cheated on each other. And so right. – and most of those couples never find out and stay together. So it literally isn't the worst thing that could possibly happen. And otherwise – so you should just say, you know, that could happen. That happens to a lot of couples in long-term relationships. Somebody cheats, nobody finds out and – they stay together and it's for the best. Hopefully that won't happen to us. I have no intent to cheat on you. The other like worst case scenario is I leave you for someone else. And if that's what you're afraid of, not that I just might fuck somebody else or you, know, you might fuck somebody else, but that I might meet some other guy that I like more than you and that I'll end this relationship to pursue that one, 
you're creating that. You're making that likelier with this jealous bullshit behavior. Because there's nothing that right. you do that makes me want to that makes me think about ending the relationship more than this. So if what you're worried about is me ending the relationship to be with somebody else, why are you doing this thing that makes me want to end this relationship to be with somebody else? Yeah, and that would be a good way to articulate it. It's the curse of the jealous bullshit, boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah. What they're most afraid of, they are actually creating. You're going right. to leave me for that person. You know what? I hadn't really thought about it, but you're such a pain in the ass. And this emotional bullying and bullshit and policing and jealousy is so awful and I can't take it anymore. I am leaving you to go be with that person or some other person to be named later because I'm done with this shit. Congratulations. What you feared most, you made happen by yelling at me about what you feared most, by not trusting me and being an insecure bag of slob. Right. And all of the jealousy and mistrust, it just, it casts this shadow over everything that is, is truly good otherwise, you know, and it's, it's hard to... And it ruins your alone time. There's all this research that shows that the (laughs) long-term successful couples have time alone, time away from each other. That that time away, you desire your partner more upon your return. That you miss your partner. You love your partner more when you're the fuck away from your partner. That the good rises and, you know, the daily annoyances uh, fade when you're away and then you're excited to be together. So if when you're away from him – all you're thinking about is that jealous bullshit that's going to go down. You're not focusing on the good. You're not desiring him. He's ruining th- your time away when you go off to a wedding by yourself for three days. And you should be missing him and you're not missing him because you know you're in for it when you get home. You're, dread- right. you're, dr- you're dreading seeing him again. Right. And the irony in some of this is that his work requires that he travels a lot. And so I do have a lot of time alone and I, it's important for me to have friends and, um, and community. And if I'm, so there's, because of his work, there's a lot of time that he's not with me, you know, during which he needs to be trusting that I'm, that I'm being faithful because I am, and I can't just spend all my time alone so that he's not jealous. <laughs> yeah, you can't, and you shouldn't have to. Yeah. And okay. You should end this relationship if he can't get the fuck over this. That doesn't mean he is a a person with no jealous feelings ever again for the rest of his life. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a partner in him who has no insecurities that you as a loving partner should be conscious of and considerate of. Of course not. Right, right. It's human nature, I know. It is human nature, Um, but it it can't rule and run your life. That it's his problem and he needs to own it. And I think there's jealousy and when there's mistrust and I, and those are different. How long have um, you been together? Six years. There were a couple of breaks, but six mm-hmm. years. He um, should, he should be over and through this. So this is a, this is a time okay. where you need to say to him, this is a relationship extinction level dynamic Yeah. and it is going yeah. to end or we're going to end. So if what you fear is us ending, yeah. this has to stop. Right. Okay. Good luck. Um, I'm so grateful for your call, Dan. It was it was nice chatting with you. You can do this. I know friends. I, I know people in relationships who've picked this lock. So don't despair. Okay. Go in. Be firm. Be strong. Rub his nose in the fact that what he's doing is bringing about what he fears. Okay. And you can you, you can overcome this. I've seen it happen, but it it's never overcome when the partner who is being controlled by the other partner's jealousy acquiesces. Then it just grows and gets okay. worse. You have to go in there and you have right. to do the fucking chemotherapy. Right, you got to go right. in there and be the powerful drug that kills this cancer. Okay, thanks. Okay, have a good day, Dan. You too. Bye. Bye. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old bi female from the Northwest. I'm proudly and safely promiscuous. A large chunk of my pre-meeting interaction involves the exchange of photos, oftentimes nude. Uh, I've been unsuccessfully warned off of this by some friends and family who mostly cite potential future employers stumbling upon my fat life or on photos that could have been posted by the many men and women I've sent them to as a reason to stop taking them all together. While some photos do show my face, most don't, and it seems like there'd be at least some level of deniability if necessary if I were faced with a discovery. <clears throat> this is beside the fact that I don't believe nudity to be unemployable, nor devious, nor really any of my employer's business. Do you suggest erring on the side of caution here? If so, what, what are your suggestions? Or should I continue to do what, what turns me on and what I believe I have every right to do? You don't mention what field you're going into. You don't mention if you want to be a school teacher. You don't mention if you want to be a senator, the second female president. If those are your life plans, uh, you know, naked pictures floating around out there could complicate your career. They could come back to haunt you. Um, even if you go into a job where it really shouldn't be an issue, some asshole. You could date somebody who knows about the pictures, who decides after you dump them to retaliate against you by sending those pictures around. Revenge porn, it's called. It's a thing. Uh, the people who should be punished socially and legally uh, when revenge porn happens are the people who are attempting to take revenge on someone by sharing their dirty pictures. Uh, that's not how it often plays out. There are lots of cases where women's exes or boyfriends or even strangers or coworkers find their pictures and send them to everyone in the office because men are horrible, right? Look what just happened to all those Hollywood actresses, uh, Jennifer Lawrence et al. Um, shitty little jealous fucks. Found their pictures, broke in, hacked them, stole them, and passed them around uh, to humiliate them and to denigrate them. Insecure little dick havers, insecure little boys. Couldn't let these women be famous and successful and powerful without trying to take them down, right? So who knows? Depending on the kind of career that you have, depending on how high you rise, depending on the kind of jealousy you might inspire in some of insecure little dick bags, you could be victimized by some asshole man in the future. That said, this gives you pleasure. And you shouldn't let the pleasure that you take in swapping pics or creating them be limited necessarily by, by little dickbag assholes to be named later. These are the, the pleasure you derive from this is real and present and constant. These fears are abstract, conjectures, possibilities, things that might happen. The, the pleasure you take in, in doing this, that's something that actually does happen right now. And you have to weigh the risk against the reward in all things, including sex. And if you regard the reward as worth the risk, and perhaps the risk is overstated, perhaps some would argue the risk is understated, then go for it. And don't let the shitty actions of others prescribe your pursuit of pleasure and where you find happiness and what turns you on. But you have to know, your friends who are warning you about the risks, they're right. There are risks. You need to be cognizant of them. You can mitigate for them. Fewer pictures with your face in them, more plausible deniability if they ever circulate. You can be an advocate for laws criminalizing revenge porn, which more states need. You can be part of a cultural conversation that stigmatizes people who would attempt to use someone's dirty pictures against them as opposed to the person who took the dirty picture in the first place. While you also take your dirty pictures and have your fun. Hi, Dan. Uh, my name is uh, Jake. I'm a 21-year-old heterosexual male college student. I recently got out of a relationship with a girl that I am really still into. We've been dating for about two to three months, 
And uh, about a month ago, she came to me and told me that she was still, she was really into me and she loved being with me, but she was not ready for a long-term relationship. And then she asked me to give her a year to figure things out and figure out if she still wanted to be with me. She's one of my best friends, so while I would accept a relationship in which we were no longer romantic, it's crushing me every day to think that I might never get to be with this person again romantically. I guess my question is, should I keep holding out and waiting for her to to figure it out and to, and to make up her mind, or should I start emotionally and, and romantically moving on so that I don't get hurt, I guess. Every day that goes by, my confidence gets struck a little bit more, and I start getting this crushing feeling that I'm investing a lot of, of my time and my emotions into something that will ultimately break my heart. Your question at the end, should you keep waiting for her or should you emotionally and romantically move on? My answer to that question is yes. Yes. You should keep waiting for her in the sense that a year isn't that long and you can check back in with her after a year and see where she's at and see where you're at. But at the same time, you should attempt to move on romantically and emotionally. Uh, You say she's one of your best friends. You say this is really hard. I assume uh, because your ages, college students, that you may be spending a great deal of time with her still, even though the relationship is officially ended or on hold or however she's describing it. Stop doing that. Stop spending time with her. Don't be her boyfriend and everything but name. Don't be her friend for right now. She doesn't want to be with you the same way you want to be with her. She's made that clear, at least for the time being. So you shouldn't be with her at all right now. Period. The end. Hang out with other friends. See other people. If you have to interact with her casually at parties or intersecting social circles, be civil, be polite. But don't be on call and don't be her support system and don't expect her to be yours because then you're just keeping that wound open. And get out there and date other people. She's asked for a year to figure out what she wants and whether that is you. And you should be doing the same. Maybe she's not what you want ultimately. Maybe there are other girls out there that if you gave them a shot and dated them would open your eyes to – Other possibilities, other possible relationships. All that said, I don't mean to be cruel, but typically when someone says, after dating for a couple of months, says things like, I'm really into you, I love spending time with you, but they're saying that, you know, they're really into you, but they don't want to be in a relationship with you. They love spending time with you, but they're not in love with you and don't see themselves falling in love with you. These are white lies that people tell each other because they think they're being kind to end a relationship with a lot of compliments as opposed to ending a relationship with a lot of clarity. And odds are this is over. Odds are what she said that night was not entirely truthful. Maybe she was hedging her bets. Maybe she wasn't sure what she wanted. But odds are what she meant was I. this is over and I'm trying to let you down as easy as possible so I'm going to drag it out for a fucking year. People who do this think they're being kind, usually not so kind, as evidenced by this call and the, the sound of his voice, sound of your voice. So there is, of course, the small chance that she was being entirely truthful 
And so if you want to hold out for that year, if you want to give her that year, if you want to circle back and reconnect after that year and see where you're both at, and if you're still single and she's still single, maybe pick it up where you left off, you have my blessing. You can do not that you needed my blessing, but you have my blessing and you can do that. In the interim, in the meantime, date other people. Become emotionally and romantically involved with other people. Hi, Dan. I have a question about birth control and about um, the people who believe that sex should only be a procreative act and that birth control should never be used and that don't believe in abortions, etc. I'm wondering how these people feel about having sex when a woman is not fertile, so when it's not possible to have a baby anyway and it can't possibly be about procreating. And I also wanted to mention that I use the fertility awareness method of birth control, which is different from the rhythm method. It often gets confused and it it shouldn't. And it's completely free and it doesn't involve hormones or physical barriers or anything. It just involves a commitment on my part or whoever is doing this to uh, take your temperature every morning, to check your cervical fluid and to check the position of your cervix and to keep track of it. And I wish that more people knew about this. I've been using this for six years. I have never gotten pregnant. And I wonder what people who believe that sex should be only a way of making babies, how they would approach the fertility awareness method of birth control. I know it counts as birth control, so maybe that's all they would need to know. Um, But I'm sure that there are people who have sex without the possibility of having a baby because the woman's not fertile. And I'm wondering um, how they would approach that or what their thoughts would be about that. And I thought maybe you would know. Fertility awareness is indeed a legit birth control method. Uh, unfortunately, it has a really high typical use value rate, 24%. Uh, typical use means the, the way people actually do it. People are sloppy and imperfect. There's a typical use uh, failure rate of con- with condoms, I think 15 to 18%. There's a typical use failure rate of birth control pills of 8%. Uh, interuterine devices under you know, 0.05%. So there's always failure rates. But you know the failure rate of for motivated couples who are really diligent about all the things that you got to check and abstaining during fertility periods or switching to condoms when someone's fertile and they want to have vaginal intercourse, that failure rate is only 0.4%. It's really, it compares really favorably, but it depends entirely on how diligent and motivated the couple using the fertility awareness method might be. But that's not your question. Uh, you, you think it works. It's obviously working for you and uh, congrats and Yahtzee. It does work really well for people who want to avoid hormonal birth controls or IUDs or anything else uh, and hate condoms and are in a committed relationship uh, and are aware of each other's STI status. The only thing I would add if you want to make the fertility awareness method even more effective is uh, layer the pulling out method on top of it. No coming inside. And I think your risks of becoming pregnant would be extremely low. But that's not your question. Your question is about what's up with religious groups and – fertility awareness method or the rhythm method or whatever else. What's their deal? It does seem a little bit odd. You know, they, a lot of religious organizations, the Catholic Church opposes birth control, certainly opposes abortion and morning after pills because they think sex is wrong if it's not open to contraception. And then these same people turn around and advise their adherents, the Catholic Church in particular, how to game this open to conception Racket. Oh, the rhythm. The Catholic Church urges the rhythm. Don't use a condom. Don't use a birth control pill. But fuck her when she's not going to get pregnant. Then you can have open to conception sex without conception. But to have sex without conception, without the possibility of conception because you're using contraception, that's sinful and wrong. 
I don't see what difference that would make to a god who believes every sperm is sacred, if Monty Python famously sang. Uh, it's very deeply silly, game-playing bullshit. People who oppose contraception and then advise people to use fertility awareness or use the rhythm method or use whatever else. They're being very deeply silly. And if God is really that concerned with all sex acts being open to conception, God can certainly tell the difference. God can see the couple who is intentionally having sex when they may make a baby and the couple who is having sex when they can't make a baby and he will cast the latter into hell with the rest of the sodomites. If that God exists and if that is what that God concerns himself with and that God does not exist and certainly does not concern himself with that. Hi, Dan. Um, my name is Kat and uh, I'm calling from Canada. I'm a 28-year-old heteroflexible female and my partner is a 35-year-old male. We met not knowing the other was kinky, and we dated for a while, and we developed a vanilla relationship. Then we naturally moved into a dom-sub power exchange in the bedroom, and now we're pretty close to a 24-7 master-slave total power exchange, and it feels right for both of us, even though it sounds really weird to say it out loud. A few months after we established the master-slave dynamic, he told me he wants to begin exploring his dominance with other submissive women. I'm totally fine with this, in theory, honestly. He takes care of all my wants and needs. In fact, we've been chatting with a female switch who we both want to play with, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun. But recently, something felt wrong, and I noticed he was being careful with his phone and slightly preoccupied. And since our relationship isn't a deposition, I tried to relax about it, but he saw through it, and we ended up having a discussion about it. It turns out he was talking to another submissive woman, but he wasn't sure he wanted to pursue anything with her, so he didn't bring her up. I understand his reasoning, but I'm still really uncomfortable with it. Since the discussion, he had her introduce herself, and we've exchanged a few messages. She seems fine, and she says she's open to playing with both of us, but I find a few things about her bring out my insecurities. She doesn't want to get to know me at all, it seems. She can be bratty, which is something I don't do that often. She's more assertive and experienced in kink than I am. I believe that all of this makes me uncomfortable because she's different from me. She's showing him an alternate option that I can't be. I understand that no one can be everything to everyone. But I am so afraid that her brattiness and her being all shiny and new will keep playing on my insecurities, making our conversation strained and uncomfortable and maybe even eventually driving us apart. I'm not good at hiding my feelings from him. He reads me too well. It's not his fault I feel this way, and I don't want him to feel as though he can't come to me about her or that he needs to hide anything like this. Since I know I can't fake it, how do I get over it? As I understand TPE, or total power exchange relationships, which you claim to be in one with this guy, uh, is that he gets to do whatever the fuck he wants, right? And you have to eat it or not eat it. Uh, but he gets to do what he wants, whether you like it or not. I do think you are within your rights, I would hope, to communicate to him that you like it not and to share with him the reasons you like it not, respecting, if you must, the boundaries of your TPE, total power exchange, dom-sub relationship. At the same time, you say to him, this girl, I think, is not a good play partner. This girl, I think, is bratty. This girl, I think, is... Uh, 
rude to me and I worry that this girl will be not respectful of our relationship or its primacy. But you're the boss. You're the master. You can do what you want, whether I like it or not. But file that away. I like this not. And then, you know, if you are in a TPE, then you get to do what he wants. And you just have to live with the jealousy and the insecurity. Maybe you don't want to be in a TPE relationship. Maybe what you're discovering with this process is that total power exchange isn't for you as opposed to just power exchange, right? Erotic power exchange, normal sort of on-off DS where both partners play with the idea of dominance and submission, but there's some bedrock acknowledgement, a bedrock understanding that you are equals in this relationship. And the relationship, as all relationships are, is a negotiation, an ongoing negotiation. So maybe what you're finding out is TPA ain't for you, and PE might be a better fit. That said, caller, sometimes when it comes to these kinds of open relationships, whether they're DS or not, that insecurity that somebody shiny and new is going to come along and that your partner is going to leave you for that person, the only way to conquer that insecurity is to have it disproven for you, to have your partner run off momentarily with that shiny new thing and come back, that they don't leave you for shiny new. They enjoy shiny new for its shiny newness, and they enjoy you for your familiarity and security and comfort and sexiness and everything else that you bring to the table. Yeah, shiny and new is new. People are wired to seek variety. People like new experiences. People are attracted to new and different people. People are also, most of them, in a long-term relationship, and this is not a very long-term relationship at this stage, yours and his, are also attracted to the person they're with, to the familiar, to the reliable. And you guys are still exploring and your relationship is still growing. So I think you could be a bit more confident in what you've got with him and a bit less threatened by her shiny newness. But her brattiness, I don't think you have to put up with that. And if I were you, and this was my not total power exchange relationship, you go to your boyfriend and say, you know, this has to work for both of us. What's in this for me? You know, when you're talking to the woman who has a switch, that would have, there would have been three ways it would have involved me. Uh, I would have been included in the DS dynamics of it in a in a real way, in an erotic way for me. I'm not sure how I fit into this one. And how are, how do you make this encounter or this desire to be with this woman sexy for me too? And that can take the form of laying down the law with this bratty girl that you're a package deal and you come with and you guys play together. Or he can exclude you intentionally as a part of a DS scene with you. That he can eroticize your exclusion from this. I urge you to do more reading about dom-sub stuff if you guys are going to take it this seriously and go for the TPE as opposed to the PE. Good luck. Hi, Dan. Okay, um, so my vibrator has become a big issue. It probably all started because um, I repressed my sexuality at a very young age. Um, my father was abusive sexually, violently, um, we're all good now, though. He's an old man, and we've made up, and it's great. But um, my friends started experimenting when they were, like, 13. I kind of wanted to know what was going on. I asked my mom um, about about what an orgasm felt like. She came back with the Hitachi from Bed Bath & Beyond because she heard it was the best when it was still being filled there and not at good vibrations. So I started using that for a long time. I didn't start having sexual partners with both men and women until I was like probably in my mid to late 20s, actually. And um, by that time, I was pretty, I couldn't have an orgasm without 
my vibrator. I remember at first it was pretty painful, the, the feeling I remember when I was a kid, and then later the high was pretty painful. Now I just go straight to the high pressure, and it doesn't even work on its own. I have to have like a lot of plates spinning at the same time with help from my partners. I have tried to go off of it. I've tried months without it, years. I've tried going down to lesser vibrators. Nothing helps. I just got really grumpy. Joining me by phone, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, research scientist at Indiana University, sex educator at the Kinsey Institute, and author of Sex Made Easy and lots of other books, and the only person out there in the world who's assaulted me with a vulva and lived to tell the tale. Hey, Debbie. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? We should add that it was a, a vulva puppet that I was assaulted with. Yeah, it wasn't really a vulva, just a vulva puppet. It was like a giant felt Muppet pussy. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> uh, the caller, uh, 26 years old, by uh, uses a Hitachi Magic Wand, which is a vibrator I often recommend. And she's worried it's going to sand the nerve endings off her clit or something. Is this an actual thing that women who use powerful vibrators need to concern themselves with? Well, you know, there there is no research on whether vibrators per se really, uh, you know, kind of change genital sensation um, over time. Um, but there's a lot of research on genital sensation. And I would say the biggest take-home message from it is that just kind of sensitivity of your genitals isn't really well correlated with your sexual function. In other words, whether or not you're more or less sensitive with your genitals isn't the whole picture sexually for people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I wouldn't worry too much about using vibrators. I really wouldn't. People use them for decades without a problem. But that doesn't mean that, that some people don't have some questions or curiosities or challenges with them from time to time. But can people become addicted to vibrators or over-reliant on them? Can they carve a groove into somebody that's so deep that they can't then respond to a tongue or a finger or some other kind of stimulation? Well, I, I don't like the word addiction, but I do think that you know people can uh, kind of become reliant on any one sexual behavior, whether that's using a certain hand position with masturbation or oral sex or intercourse. And if you stick to that one thing over and over again, it is true that some people then find it difficult to come in different ways. Um, and you know, is, I don't and think is that it's psychological the, or is that physiological? That's a good question. There's no research on it. And, you know, my guess is it's a bit of both. Um, you know, I think that sometimes when we find a new way to come, that feels really good. We do it a lot. Mm-hmm. And then when we go back to others, it's more difficult, but we can generally kind of retrain or reteach our bodies to respond to those other kinds as well. Those subtler kinds of stimulation. Yeah. That is mm-hmm. my, you know, I often get the question from guys who can't come unless their dick's in their own right hand and, you know, right. unpack it with them. It's that they're gripping their dick so hard. I call it the death grip, gripping it in a way that no mouth, no anus, uh, no vagina can ever grip a penis. And, you know, my advice to them is like, stop it, mix it up, softer touch, exactly. more left hand, right hand, get a flashlight. And you can, and I've heard from guys who successfully walked that back, like made their dick so Absolutely. desperate to come. And, and the trick is, you don't then, you know, try with a flashlight for 20 minutes and then give up and use your death grip at the very end to finish yourself off. You just don't come. You don't come. You, you keep masturbating in these different new ways until your dick adapts. Does the same advice apply to someone who feels that they may be addicted to really intense stimulation like a Hitachi magic wand? Is it a good idea for this woman to give up the vibrator that she knows works and use a vibrator with a lighter touch? It can be, you know, she, she did say that, you know, she feels a little grumpy without, you know, having that orgasm and I can understand <laughs> that. 
But if, if what she really wants to do is find out if she can be responsive in other ways, then that's, that's a great plan to try. Um, you know, I, the Hitachi magic wand is really, really intense. It's a very strong vibrator, you know, some of the, the strongest it gets really. Um, I tend to be a bigger fan of ones that have like multiple speeds, you know, like seven speeds or a multi-speed dial. Um, you know, but it's, you know, I'm also a fan of people having more than one around. So the Hitachi is great for some people, um, but having some lighter or moderate ones is another possibility. Um, but again, yeah, just retraining your body. I, I always say like lube sometimes, not other times, you know, want this speed another time and then switch it up. Um, if you really want to try to be responsive in other ways, other people don't have any difficulty responding and they just like their same old routine every time. And if that works for them, that's fine too. How do you strike a balance between, you know, perhaps trying to retrain your body, perhaps, you know, wanting to be able to climax in different ways, different kinds of sensation provided by different toys or partners or different positions or play. How do you balance that desire with accepting that this may be how your body works? Some people require a certain and really intense focus kind of stimulation in order to climax. And you can try and try and try to adapt to different ways. And it's kind of never going to work. How do you know when to give up? Right. Well, I think that's, I think it's when you've reached your personal breaking point and you just say, this is it. But, you know, it is, it is challenging to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. And it's also at that, at a particular time in life, right? Because you can, for quite some time, come a certain way. And then whether it's a different relationship or just something has changed about your body, let's say hormonally or the time that you have available, um, you know, to spend having sex, like, let's say now you have like little kids or you have a more stressful job or, whatever the case is, you don't have as much time, you know, sometimes you just have to adapt and that's what life is. And if, you know, this is how your body works, whether forever or for right now, that's okay. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old lesbian from Florida in a long-term monogamous relationship with a wonderful 30-year-old woman. I'm calling because I think my vibrator may be destroying my sex life. The only way I seem to be able to come is lying flat on my back with the vibrator in the right spot while watching my partner do dirty things or while watching porn. And it usually takes me about almost an hour to come, even with the highest setting on the vibrator. While I know my partner is GGG and wants me to come and is happy to talk dirty or put on a sexy show for me, I know she is wanting more out of our sex. I don't like being touched below my belly button when I'm trying to come because I feel like it's distracting. She's a little bit more kinky and gets off within 15 minutes, typically. And while she's been really patient with my process, I can sense that my orgasm is starting to feel more of an undertaking than a hot, fun experience. I want to be able to come multiple times a week, but under these conditions, I'm feeling like maybe I'm asking too much of my partner. Is it true that vibrators can sense, uh, can build sensation over time? What can I do to become more GGG with my partner while still getting my rocks off? Thanks, Dan. So this caller is worried that vibrators somehow dulled sensation over time, and it takes her forever to climax, and she feels guilty about it. Is the vibrator responsible? For her predicament? Well, you know, it, it may be that using a vibrator um, is something that she's become accustomed to and it takes a certain style and a certain intensity and a certain length of time, but it doesn't mean that it's the vibrator's fault. Um, you know, many of the people that I've talked with that 
um, take some time to use their vibrator have often had that be their experience their whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that's just some people's experience. There's one detail, one thing she throws away just offhandedly and aside in, in her call in the question that I thought was getting closer to what the problem might be. She says that during sex, when she's trying to get off, she can't even be touched by her partner yeah. below the waist. Yeah. Partner can't come anywhere near her because she says it's distracting or it, it, it throws her off uh, somehow. And it seems like that's the point to start working on this, like relaxing into allowing your partner to touch your genitals and maybe you know, setting the vibrator aside, not like setting the vibrator aside, never using it again, but as the issue, setting the vibrator aside, maybe that's not the issue. Maybe it's the hang up or the discomfort in your own body and your own skin and this inability to allow yourself to be touched. It may be. And I think that that, that would be a fine area to, to focus on and to look at. It does seem like she's very easily distracted, um, whether it's by touch or her possibly even her own thoughts. Um, there's plenty of research that shows that women are far more easily distracted than men are during sex. And, you know, it is why, um, you know, mindfulness techniques have been really helpful for women. Um, but if there are certain issues with being touched too, then there also might be a lot of anxiety or aversion going on that can make, you know, it can just make it difficult to, to relax and feel comfortable and feel open, um, to, to being touched or licked or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that would sort of turn her on during sex enough to come. So what pers- you know you hear about the elusive female orgasm you, you hear about anorgasmia anorgasmic women what percentage of women have real difficulty coming or, or it's impossible like who, who who can't very very few mm-hmm. very very few would like truly no matter what you tried would be unable to now that doesn't mean that it doesn't take women quite some time so even some women who I know who um, you know, now do have orgasms. Some of them it did take like 10 or 15 years before they learned how to have one. So just because they're in their orgasmic category now doesn't mean that they were when they were 20 or 25 or 30. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, there is a small percentage of women, just a few percent who are going to have significant difficulty. But remember, even women who, for example, have, you know, spinal cord injury can experience orgasm. It doesn't mean that everyone can. It doesn't mean that everyone has to. Um, but it can take some pretty significant, uh, you know, neurological issues before you're unable to experience orgasm. And is there any data looking at the amount of time it takes women to come? Like this woman says her partner can come in 15 minutes and come multiple times. And it takes her always at least an hour of this focused, intense stimulation before she can climax. Yeah, there's not as um, much good data for women. For men, there is, and it's a very small percent, less than 5%, who experience, you know, really uh, significant difficulty where it would take them about 45 minutes or an hour to have an orgasm. Mm -hmm. My guess is it's pretty similar for women because most of the orgasm data is fairly parallel for women and men. Okay, so is this indicative of a problem that needs working on, or is this another case of you may just have to accept that this is how your body works? You have orgasms, you can come, but this is how they come for you. This is how you get off. You know, it, it might be that that's just how her body is. Frankly, for people who really, really want to try and kind of shorten their time, and no matter what they've tried, it's taken a long time. For the most part, sex therapy, like for men with inhibited ejaculation, where it takes them like an hour to come, sex therapy ends up being some of the most effective um, you know, kind of treatment that they would try. It doesn't mean that you can't try to do it at home, 
Um, and it doesn't mean that any sex therapist would be good because we certainly know it's about finding the right, you know, the right one for you. Mm -hmm. Um, but that does seem to be a better combination because often, you know, unless it's some physical thing, people who may be having some psychological challenges or relaxation challenges getting into it often really benefit from working with somebody over time. And I think this caller clearly has some psychological or relaxation challenges if she can't be touched. Mm -hmm. That there's something that's where, again, I think that's where you, you start. If she gets a sex therapist, start there. It is. And there's, there's actually a great book that, you know, this color reminded me of, um, called, uh, for yourself by Lonnie Barbeck. It's an older book, but it's just, it's so wonderful, you know, written by the sex therapist who worked closely with women as individuals and in groups, all about kind of opening yourself to sexual pleasure and touch and intimacy. And that would be a really, you know, possibly great place for her to start. Dr. Debbie Herbenek, research scientist at Indiana University, sex educator at the Kinsey Institute, and author of Sex Made Easy and other books. Check her out. Follow her on Twitter. And thank you very much, Debbie, for jumping on the phone again. We so appreciate it. Nice to talk to you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 17-year-old, probably straight, probably female. Some days I wake up and I would rather be a boy. I have no problem with the idea of cross-dressing. In middle school, sometimes I would wear my brother's clothes around the house just because I felt less insecure as a boy. I still occasionally put on baggy pants and wear them low on my waist so that my hips look more male. I didn't think that it was weird to want to be a guy sometimes, especially since I also sometimes enjoy being a girl, and that wish is non-sexual for me. Not that I'd be ashamed if it were sexual, but when I mentioned it to my mom, she gets a funny look on her face and asks if I'm going to come home with a girlfriend someday. I explained my gender weirdness to my closet closest friend last night and he said well maybe it's because you're not sexually active and no one's ever made you feel like a lady what the fuck did he get that from like porn or something i really want to tell someone that i want to be a guy sometimes and not get a weird look or a fucked up misogynistic comment i don't think i'm transgender i'm just not particularly committed to my gender i'll keep my ovaries because that's the path of least resistance but like the teenager i am i wish someone would validate that i want to be a boy it's so weird to want to go to a place where no one knows your name and walk around as the opposite gender or as androgynous? In my mind, it's completely innocent. What do I do about my friends? What do I do about my mom? What do I do about me? Thanks, Dan. This doesn't have to be so fraught. I know we're at the trans tipping point. I know a lot of people are looking at trans issues and some people are measuring themselves against them and trying to figure out if they might be trans. You don't really have to work at it so hard. You know, I get a lot of email from guys – I used to actually get a lot more of it. But I got a lot of email back in the day and still some from guys who wonder if they might be gay because they had one dirty dream about a boy or they got one blowjob once or gave one blowjob once but they like girls and whatever else. And I would often respond to them, you know, it's usually pretty apparent if you're gay. Most of us who are gay, we kind of really know it. And I think that that is not universally true for trans people but most people who are trans – kind of know it, that they're not trying to tease out transness from one gender nonconforming trait and trying to see if that might, if they pull that thread, it might unravel the garment of their the gender that they were coercively assigned at birth and they'll realize that they were trans. It sounds to me like you're just androgynous. It sounds to me like you're every girl I went to high school and theater school with who sometimes would just fuck with people, dress up as boys, dress up as girls, just sort of play with the expectations and play with gender norms, play with looks, but you can just embrace androgyny. 
And you can embrace ambiguity as well. You don't have to, this isn't a test. You don't have to gender, sexual orientation. It's not a college you have to apply to in the next year. You can allow your gender play to continue and see what you learn about yourself. Sounds like you're pretty certain that you like boys. You said that you're most likely straight. You said you're most likely female. You can be straight and female and present male when you feel like it. Dress up like a boy. Gender queer, I think is what they call androgyny now in special snowflake times. So I would encourage you to stop thinking about it so hard. Let your mom have her stress about it. Let your mom have her worries and her looks and just enjoy yourself and your sense of freedom and your sense of playfulness and stop thinking about it so hard. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30 something year old woman, happily married to men who, uh, we, uh, recently hammered out a open marriage arrangement that works for both of us. Uh, it, I like to know he doesn't like to know we're having a good time with it. Uh, and, but recently, something came up that I'm not quite sure how to deal with. Uh, it, I had been seeing a man in town who, uh, in a very small town, who uh, I know partially in a professional capacity, and we had been having a really good time, and uh, both in the bedroom and out, it was great. And I did not do my due diligence, and things with his girlfriend were more serious than I'd kind of thought, and... She found out through a series of missteps on both of our parts. So, whoops, uh, I suck. I feel terribly guilty for uh, causing her pain, uh, it, uh, and I should have uh, I should have been uh, better better about that. I really should have. So, it's this was a week ago, and he uh, kept talking to me. We uh, met up a couple of times. I, I apologized for my part. He apologized for his part. Uh, I felt like we were, you know, like things were going to be okay. He said he and his girlfriend had been having a lot of other problems too. So that wasn't the only thing that uh, that killed them. I still feel terrible, but it was nice to know that it wasn't just me. Then we were supposed to meet up this morning, and last night I texted to confirm and. Uh, he sent me back a short text message just saying, I can't, please, I'm trying to work this out, and uh, I can't do this anymore. Uh, and then it deleted me on social media and so on. And I'm going to see him. It's a tiny town. I will definitely see him in a professional capacity. How do I act? Uh, what What is the etiquette for this? Uh, it was ill-conducted on both of our parts, and... I was really having a great time with him. I, and I really miss him. He was just unbelievably hot and so nice and so funny and so smart. And I don't know how to act because I'm probably going to see him within the next week or two because that's how this town is. The question, your question is, how do you treat this guy when you see him socially? You know, a small town, you're going to run into each other and you have some sort of overlap in your business lives, your professional lives, where you're going to be thrown into the same room with this guy. How do you treat him? Casually, in a friendly manner, like your acquaintances that you're on good and friendly terms with. You smile, you say hi, you say how are you doing, you wish him well, and you don't pull him aside to have a tearful moment and process this bullshit because there's really nothing here to process. 
unfortunately, and I'm sorry, it's painful for you. And I, I hear the pain in your voice and I don't want to salt your wounds. And I respect your right to have a sad about the end of this relationship. But unfortunately you've been downgraded. It's over. You've been dumped and that happens. And you're in a open marriage yourself. It just fucking happens. Sometimes things don't work out forever and they may end before one or the other party is ready for it to be over. And that can be the source of pain. And that's just life. And that's just relationships, period, open or otherwise. And you have to swallow that and tough it out and feel bad and have your sad, but don't throw yourself into an ocean of self-pity because you'll drown, right? And you don't want to drown. So when you see him, Fake it till you make it. Go up to him. Say, hi, how you doing? It's so nice to see you again. I hope you're well. I hope everything's great with you. And just be the grown-up and be the adult. And slap a smile on your face. And basically fake it till you make it. Go through the motions of being okay with it, okay with it being over, and still feeling affection for this person and wishing them well. Just go through that. Do that. Hit that mark until you feel it. It will rise up inside you. You will feel that way. And remind yourself that this isn't really all about you. You're married. You have a partner at home. You'll have other relations. You have another relationship and you will have other relationships. He's clearly trying to forge something with this other woman that he wronged. And he's making amends to her. And she probably demanded that he cut you out of his life, drop you from social media and everywhere else. And you wronged her too, partly. It sounds like this continued on even after you found out that somebody was being deceived, which is not in the spirit of openness and honesty. And so you both kind of wronged this woman and she's hurting and he's trying to make it up to her. Everything going on here is obvious and apparent. And so what do you do? You accept that it's over. You have your sad ended before you wanted it to be over. And you treat him kindly and decently and affably when you see him in public. And that's it. Those are the only three things that you have to do. And then look around your small town and see who else needs their sack strained. Before we say goodbye, I want to set up this week's response calls. We get a lot of really great feedback from our listeners. A lot of listeners call with advice and insight for other callers whose questions and problems they heard on the show. We run uh, as many as we can. We run the best of what we get from all of you. Uh, and last week, we played a call from a woman who's in what I think is an abusive relationship with somebody who's just hot and cold, lovey-dovey one minute and ice the next minute, uh, and just keeping her on tenterhooks. And I said, if anybody has any advice for this woman, if anybody out there has found themselves in a similar circumstance and extricated themselves from that circumstance, please call with your advice and your insight for that caller. And we got an avalanche of just great calls, great responses, a lot of really great advice uh, from the Savage Lovecast listeners out there for this woman. And we're going to play the best of some of it now. Hey, Dan. This is a follow-up for the woman who has the hot and cold boyfriend, loves her one minute, treats her like crap the next. Just cut contact. I had the same experience. That's the only thing you can do. You're not friends. You're not boyfriend, girlfriend, because he wouldn't treat you like that if he actually loved you. You don't need it. Just DMFA, really. That's the only thing you can do. Delete his contact. Don't take his calls. If he drops by, just say no. 
For one thing, it might help you to recognize that this is a form of abuse. It sounds like it is. It certainly was in my case. This is emotional abuse. This is an abusive relationship. He is an abuser. And you need to tell the people that are close to you, that are in your support system, that that's what's happening and that you need their help. Honey, it sounds like an addiction. It sounds like you're in this relationship and you want to get out, but you can't because every time you feel like it's a good time to leave, the good stuff comes back. And that's an addiction. And those are often fostered by abusive partners. So if you were looking for a reason to leave, that's a good enough one. He is an abusive partner and you should leave him. Throughout my profession as a social worker, I have met countless women who have endured this kind of behavior. People are often very accusatory of women in domestic violence situations who stay with their abusers, but they underestimate the power and the depth of that kind of manipulation. They're not weak or stubborn or stupid for not having let him go yet, but you are in a very vulnerable position and should seek some support getting out of it. I strongly encourage you to jump ship before the waters become too treacherous. Uh, when I was having a similar, albeit much less extreme, problem with my ex-boyfriend, I changed his name in my phone to Head Games. So every time he called me or texted me, I knew exactly what he was doing. It really helped. He doesn't love you the way that you deserve to be loved. He's a bad guy, and he needs to be defeated, basically. Think about the satisfaction she would get by knowing that she was the one who walked away. Girl, my heart goes out to you. I have been there. This is an addictive, unhealthy relationship with a commitment-phobic asshole. He's playing some serious head games. Stop trying to make sense of his behavior. It does not make any sense. Run for the fucking hills. She needs a project for herself where she can, like, totally immerse herself and just get over this guy. You know, I suggest, like, signing up for some crazy race, like a marathon or if that's too daunting, half marathon, something where she's just working on her. I've always found that when you take time to work on yourself and time to like love yourself, that's when the good guys start noticing and start wanting to hang out. For me, what worked is get yourself a fuck buddy for real. Find someone that you can dial uh, at a moment's notice and say rendezvous, and they know what you mean. They're gone by the next morning. Uh, it's a great ego boost for you, and it also helps to remind you that there are other people out there. I had the exact same experience. It will end eventually. I was stuck in this horrifying, vicious cycle for five years, and it's awful, and all of my friends were just horrified at how much pain I was in, how long it went on. But finally, something in me just kind of snapped, and I just ended all communication, you know, blocked from all social media, deleted his phone number, just completely had to delete them from my life. And it was really, really hard. Um, and then six months later, I left. I met the love of my life, and it's absolutely wonderful. And it's the most healthy, happy relationship I've ever been in. And I just want to tell you that it will end eventually, and I feel your pain. 
And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Debbie Herbenick on Twitter at Debbie Herbenick, H-E-R-B-E-N-I-C-K. And one more note before we go, the deadline for submitting films to Hump, Seattle and Portland's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festivals approaches. September 30th is the deadline to submit your dirty movies to Hump. For information about making or submitting a film to Hump, go to humptour.com and click on Submit Films for all the details. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.